SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. A CBS News senior medical correspondent. So I have to say my love for science and medicine started when I was very young. I just always had that innate bent. She's on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic storm. All of the healthcare workers crying out for lack of PPE and personal protective equipment. That really touched me as a doctor. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Tara Narula. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. COVID-19 has dominated the news for the past several months, like few topics have ever done before. This is understandable in light of the global nature of the pandemic and its effects on people around the globe. Although a huge story, it is decidedly not easy to cover. The novel coronavirus is not easy to understand, and whatever understanding we have seems to change daily. Its impact on public health around the globe has no doubt been disastrous, but at the same time, difficult to quantify. And while the global response to the pandemic has been thoughtful, it has also caused a worldwide economic upheaval that leaves many questioning whether the cure has been worse than the disease. In other words, this is not an easy story to tell. Dr. Tara Narula, today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, is a key player in telling the story, the medical story of COVID-19. In addition to being a cardiologist and professor, she is a senior medical correspondent for CBS News, where she provides medical opinions for numerous CBS shows and offerings. She is not only on the front line of reporting on the pandemic, she has also become deeply involved in telling the personal stories that lie at the center of COVID-19 and the crisis. She is, in many ways, at the veritable center of the pandemic storm. Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with your Stanford story. I love Stanford stories. Where were you living when you applied to be an undergrad at Stanford? Why Stanford? What's your favorite memory? You know the drill. All that stuff about Stanford. So Stanford, those four years were probably some of the best of my entire life. And I have to say, it was a little bit of an unusual road getting there. I grew up in South Florida, and I went to a small private school, and most of the kids from my school went to the Northeast. So I think I was the first person to go to Stanford from my high school in maybe 10 years. And I have to say the reason I chose it at that time was I visited all these campuses in the Northeast and then I went and visited Stanford. And when you walk around Stanford, you know, people are smiling and they're happy and they're so warm. And I just felt immediately at home. So uh, it was kind of a no brainer when I got accepted that that's where I wanted to go. And I have to say it was probably, again, one of the best decisions I've made. 
Um, and then when I got there, I lived in Log, Lake Log in Naranja. Yeah. That was my yeah. freshman dorm. Sure. Um, and then Flomo. And then my last two years were at La Casa Italiana. I was actually the RA in Casa Italiana my senior year. Wow. Now, had you gone overseas to Florence? I wanted to. I actually took Italian for a couple months with the plan of going, and then I ended up not going. So I had a love for Italy. It's in my blood. I'm half Italian, but uh, never actually ended up doing my time abroad. Oh, I love that story. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So then after Stanford, you went to medical school at USC and then did your residency at internal medicine at Harvard's Brigham and Windman Hospital. And you're now a cardiologist and a professor of cardiovascular medicine. So let me ask this question that I love to ask of doctors. How old were you when you realized you wanted to become a doctor? And when did you decide not only a doctor, but a cardiologist? So I have to say my love for science and medicine started when I was very young. I just always had that innate bent. But my father is a cardiologist. Ah. And I came from a family of doctors and nurses. And so I would go to the hospital with him when I was very little and make rounds and just loved that environment, loved the, seeing him interact with his patients and hearing his stories at night. And so when I was in high school, I actually volunteered in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Miami, which is where I was, where I grew up. And I got to see a heart transplant. And that- You were in high was, school and you got to yeah, see a heart transplant. It, yes, and it was, I, at that point I said, this is what I wanna do. So when I went to Stanford, it was with the idea that I was gonna be a heart surgeon, I wanted to do medicine, um, and I actually ended up majoring in economics, interestingly, with a minor in bio. Um, and my father, of all people, the doctor, said, you know, you really should think about something other than medicine. It's a difficult life, and maybe you just like it because it's the only thing you've seen. So um, I actually graduated Stanford and ended up opening a smoothie juice bar um, in Miami thinking, well, I'll pursue business. And so I didn't like business. <laughs> so <laughs> while I had my little smoothie juice bar in Miami, I took the MCAT and applied to medical school. So I was actually a little bit late going to med school. I took a little bit of a circuitous route. But by the time I got into med school, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do for sure. But my guess is you still probably make a pretty mean smoothie. I have about 24 really good recipes. You know, the funny story there is that when I graduated Stanford, I had no job. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I took the summer off, and then I said, I want to do my own business. And so I, I moved from Miami, from home, back to Stanford, lived in a hotel, and took a job at Jamba Juice, which had opened in Tresor oh, yeah. at the time, to learn how to make smoothies and how they run their business. And I did that for about a month. And all of my fellow graduates, you know, friends who were still on campus said, what are you doing behind the counter making smoothies? I thought you graduated. And I said, you know, please don't say anything. I'm learning the secrets of the trade. And then I left after a month, moved out of the hotel, went back to Florida and bought a book on how to open a business and how to write a business plan. And I opened my own business called Sunju Smoothies. So it was, <laughs> it was an interesting time of life um, before I even got to medical school. Okay, so we're going to leave the smoothie world and we're going to turn to the current day. So in addition to your work as, I love this, a doc and a prof, so a doctor and a professor, you're also a senior medical correspondent for CBS News. And so I've just got to ask, how did this additional gig happen? For which shows do you do work? And how in the world, as a cardiologist, a mother, a husband, I'm sorry, mother, wife, excuse me, and um, how do you do all this? How do you find the time? 
So when I was in medical school, I went to USC uh, in Los Angeles. And very early on, again, in medical school, I knew I loved uh, teaching and educating and writing and communicating. And I remember saying to my friends, I want to do what Sanjay Gupta does. And he was really the only one of the only people at that time who was a doctor on television. Um, and everybody thought I was crazy and because how do you end up in that position? But I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And I knew that I didn't want to be in a lab uh, doing basic science and I didn't want to be doing clinical trials. So this was going to be my road. I shouldn't know how to get there. And so when I went to Boston to do my residency, I asked my program director, how do I pursue a career in medical media? And they were really not able to help. They said, we'd love to help you, but we're not quite sure what to tell you to do. So I actually applied for my fellowship in New York City at Cornell in cardiology, thinking I'm going to go to New York. This is the right place to be. And in my last year of my cardiology fellowship, I sent my resume to every single media outlet in New York City and said, I want to be an intern. And the only people that wrote me back were NBC News. And they said, we've never had a, a doctor as an intern, but we'll take you. If, you, know, you can come and spend time with us. So for one year, I worked as an intern at NBC Nightly News. At the time, Robert Bazell was doing their science correspondent. And I learned how they did what they did, how they picked the doctors that they interviewed, how they wrote the pieces. And it was really an invaluable experience. And then when I finished my cardiology fellowship and I took my first job as a cardiologist who was practicing, um, I basically talked to the PR office at my hospital and said, this is really what I'm interested in. If you need somebody to comment or ever help with stories. And one thing led to another. And pretty quickly, um, I was doing more and more. And by 2014, I signed a contract with CBS News. And so I've been with CBS since 2014 exclusively. So it would seem to me to be two entirely different worlds. Being a doctor on the one hand, a cardiologist, and a journalist on the other hand, they're so difficult, different and difficult to understand how you could toggle back and forth between the two. How does it work? So, it, I mean, I, what I love about it is, again, I love um, public health and education. And in my office, I can see 14, 15, 16 patients a day. But with media, you know, if it's done the right way, uh, you really have the ability to reach so many people and help them. And that's what I love about it. And so the same skills that you use in your office or in the exam room, one-on-one -on -one explaining, is the same thing that I try to bring to what I do on television, which is really making it personal and reaching people in a way that they can understand and a way that resonates with them. And so, you know, the research required for the media is similar to any research that you would do. You sit down, you review the information, and you try to summarize it in a very palatable and understandable way. Um, and so that's really what I love about it. And they're not that dissimilar. And I really, you know, some people say, well, would you ever give up medicine? to do the television, and I would never do that because I really love being a doctor, and I feel like being a doctor informs my ability to teach on television. And the television work, believe it or not, actually, actually also helps my ability to be a cardiologist because I'm constantly reading what's happening to be informed on the science. Well, that's a perfect segue to where I want to go next because let's talk about these pandemic times in which we live. Um, CBS News has relied heavily on you for their COVID-19 coverage. Um, were you chosen to take the lead on this front? Did you volunteer to take the lead on this front? How did this all come about? Because this is the biggest public health story in our lifetime, in the yeah. last 100 years, and you are at absolutely the apex of this. 
I mean, it really came on, as you know, like gangbusters. And, you know, typically as a medical correspondent, you're reporting on breaking news and science in a lot of different fields. But this was, you know, really out of the blue. And we were all, all of us who do this sort of work, were forced to really step up and be on top of what was happening constantly. So, and each day there was new research and new science and new information. So if you weren't on top of it, how are you going to report it? So it really, um, it really did require an extra level of attention and attention to detail and making sure that the information you're conveying is accurate and correct and also delivering it in a way that is not going to make people more afraid than they already are. Um, so, you know, there, there are several of us who work in this field, whether it be at CBS or other networks, and I think we all try to, to do that same thing, which is to really take something that none of us were really prepared for and bring it to the public in a way that is real, honest, um, understandable, and takes the, you know, the fear out of it. Um, because that's what people want. They want people they can trust, uh, and they want to be informed. So, so as a cardiologist, my guess is you didn't have a deep well of experience and knowledge about viruses, epidemiology, infectious disease, um, pandemics before. Where do you learn? How do you go to, I mean, you said you have to keep informed. How do you do that? Right. Well, it's the same, it's the same toolbox or skills that we use for anything that we're reporting on. So when you look at the people who work in this field, you know, they may be OB-GYNs OB or gastroenterologists or cancer doctors. So all of us come with our own particular niche. And we're really required to stay on top of, as you said, science that is not our field. But it's the same skills that you use to read a research study in your own field. You're using to review the research that's coming out in other fields. And it's really just about um, as much as you can learn and be well-versed in order to explain it correctly. And so, um, you know, my husband teases me that, you know, I, I probably prepare more than <laughs> a lot of people for a segment that's two minutes, I'm reading, reading, reading for hours, you know, ahead of time to make sure that I have as much data and background on whatever the topic is, because there is no way to be on top of every single thing. Even in cardiology, you know, my own field, there's so many different, there's the electrical system and heart failure and the valves. And so I'm always reading about those things. So it's the same skills you use even as a doctor in your own field that you use to explain information about other fields. The heart doesn't change on seemingly a daily or hourly basis, but this story is changing literally on an hourly basis. And so if people are looking you, are looking to you to be their sort of um, North Star in understanding this and feeling comfortable and feeling unafraid, I mean, that's a big responsibility on your shoulders, I would think. It is, and, and I think it's the same responsibility that I felt you know, all along doing this job. And that's why I try to prepare as much as I can because people really do listen to what you say and they make medical decisions and healthcare decisions based on what you say. And so you better be as accurate um, as you can. And so, yes, it's a huge responsibility. And, um, you know, honestly, one of the biggest um, things for me in this story was all of the healthcare workers crying out for lack of PPE and personal protective equipment. That really touched me as a 
doctor in a way that I think a lot of other stories um, maybe didn't. But to see and hear the voices of these people who are working so hard to protect others saying they didn't have the proper equipment. Um, I have to say, of all the things that we've covered, to me, that was the most personal um, and the, the most important in my mind uh, of what I was able to kind of get out there. It was fascinating about that comment on your part is that that wasn't really the medical story. That was the fact that our country was fundamentally unprepared. Exactly. Exactly. And people's lives were in danger. And as we said, if we had lost our healthcare workers, who's going to take care of everybody else? And so, you know, it's we take an oath as healthcare workers to help and heal others. But it's hard then when you're putting your own life in danger or your family's life in danger. So it was a very, very personal story. So let's talk about the worst and the best. What is the best part for you of having covered so far this pandemic? What are the highlights, the things that you feel like you've really made a difference? And then conversely, what are the things that just suck your soul, that they just suck the energy out of you because it's just so awful? Yeah. Well, the PPE story for sure was, you know, the one that I think, as I said, resonated and that I'm most proud of us at CBS bringing to the forefront. Um, I think the stories of hope for me are really important, too, because we do focus a lot on the tragedy and the sadness, which is there. But I always feel like it's important to show those bright lights or those moments of hope. So some of the stories we've done on people who've gotten better, for example, from plasma therapy or from some of the other therapies. Um, I think it's really important to talk about that. You know, we've covered a lot of children who have this new multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which as a parent of two young kids is very uh, scary for a lot of parents to hear about. So I think covering that in the appropriate way where we balance presenting the information we have, but also, again, you know, keeping it real and not causing more fear uh, in, for parents was very important. So those are probably the, the things that I, I think I'm most proud of in our coverage. I think the soul-sucking part are just the story. I mean, it's it's been... It's been sad and to hear about the tragic losses that we've had of, of people across every background, every age, um, every type of work. And when you cover that and again, you realize like these aren't just numbers, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. These are people's parents and sisters and um, friends. You know, the, there are human faces to every single number. And I think that's the part that's so hard to wrap your mind around. More with Tara Narula senior medical correspondent at CBS News talking about the pandemic on Sirius XM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking about the pandemic with Tara Narula, senior medical correspondent for CBS News. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation circulating about COVID-19, how to protect oneself, therapies. Will we have a vaccine? Will we not? Um, the hydroxychloroquine, I mean, all of these stories are out there. And you're the one that they look to, that the viewer looks to, to cut through, you know, the chaff to get to the wheat. Mm-hmm. How do you advise the regular viewer who may be watching you, but maybe watching others or reading um, to discern fact from fiction in this most amazing of amazing health stories? I mean, certainly, I think relying on sources that we think are the most credible. So the CDC, you know, the WHO, um, 
a lot of the societies. So, you know, in my field, the American Heart Association or the American Academy of Pediatrics. So whenever people have doubt, I always sort of guide them to those organizations and say, go to their website, read what they're putting out, you know, read what their guidelines are. So I think finding credible sources of information is, is hugely important. But I think it's also important for people to understand that we don't always have the answers and we don't always know. And I think in medicine, even in our relationships with our patients, we say that a lot, you know, medicine is not black and white, there's not always an answer. And I think that's hard. People want to know. Um, and sometimes, building that trust in that relationship uh, is also saying that I'm along this journey with you. And what I tell you today may be very different from what I tell you next week. And that's okay because that's how science works. It's constantly changing and evolving, particularly with something like this. So I think just being transparent and being open and honest, those are really important, not only in the doctor patient relationship, but in what we do in medical journalism as well. So a friend of mine who uh, is a practicing physician at Stanford, at Stanford Medical Center, put it to me best when he said, you've got to understand, Howard, there's a reason that we call it the practice of medicine. We don't, it's, we don't have it all down, and we're learning as we go. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the politicization of this disease, right? So as we watch the country come back, it's very red and blue state in the nature of the way that, that areas are coming back. I... I'm calling you from Stanford, California, where it's in the middle of Santa Clara County, the first county in the entire country to put shelter in place a program um, in place. It's very, very conservative here in California as it relates to restarting the economy, coming back. Um, I think we have more people wearing masks than probably any state in the union. But at the same time, there are other states that are looking at this in an entirely different way. How do you separate the politics from the science and medicine when you do your reporting? Well, they're completely separate and they should be. And I think it is hard to do because our tendency and, and a lot of times in the media is to combine things or try to combine things or make something a political issue. But we try to keep the science separate. You know, These are the facts. This is what we know. This is our best advice based on what we know. Um, and then, you know, if the politics creeps in, that's not hopefully because we're bringing it in. Um, but I do think it's important to try to, to create that divide because again i think that is where some of that trust comes in is really understanding that they are two separate things and there really is not a place for politics in the science but at the same time science is always doesn't always agree with itself right so you've got remdesivir right which <laughs> one study says ah eh, not so good another study says ah eh, really good another one says mm, not so sure so science actually can disagree well, that's, how, that's what we were saying before. I mean, science is constantly changing. That's how it works. That's why we do clinical studies. And so what we thought worked, you know, a year ago, maybe with more research and data, the next year we say something different. And I think a lot of times that's hard for people to understand, and that makes them distrust science because they say, you're telling us one thing one day, coffee's good for you, and the next day you're telling us coffee's not. Right. Um, and, and, and that is difficult, but it's, it's how the nature of research and science works. It is constantly evolving and constantly changing. All right. So now I want you to take out your crystal ball and I'm gonna ask you a series of questions about the future, okay? So when do you see therapeutics that treat the illness and you know, our prayer and hope is that it keeps us from dying. When do you see therapeutics in wide use that mitigate the main risks of the novel coronavirus? 
Yeah, well, we certainly are beginning to see some of the initial data on remdesivir. And we've also talked a lot about some of these cytokine inhibitors like tocilizumab. Um, oh, I'm sorry, what was that word you used? What kind of cyt- inhibitors? <laughs> cytokine. So we part of the problem with COVID-19 is we talk about cytokine storm, which is this oh, that's the infl- inflama- yes. yeah, inflammatory storm that a lot of people have that makes them so sick. And so there are drugs that try to quiet that inflammation or that cytokine storm that are being used in patients. Um, and those drugs are, we're going to be seeing some of the results of that in the next coming weeks and months. So I think by the end of the summer and by the fall, we'll probably have a better handle on what the right cocktail of therapeutics is. And I do think it's going to be a cocktail. Some drugs that maybe target the virus, some drugs that target the inflammatory component of it. Um, we're, I just did an interview yesterday about uh, plasma and kind of what the future of, of antibody therapy is, whether it's monoclonal antibodies, polyclonal. Um, so I think there are a lot of things in the pipeline, and the next couple months are going to be really key uh, for us developing that final mix of, of a therapeutic. And is the, is the goal that you, you, you have COVID-19, you just don't feel as bad when you have it and you're not going to die? Is, I mean, I, I don't mean to be so stark about it but the goal isn't that is really get, the goal is to get to a vaccine the goal is to get to herd immunity where enough people in the society have had it that it's very difficult for the virus to then take hold or to develop an effective vaccine yeah, but so i want to get to the vaccine in a second hold on a second before we yeah. get to the vaccine though the therapeutics are to allow you to live through having the disease yes they're buying time they're buying you time so that if you get infected we can keep you from dying. We can keep you from ending up on a ventilator. We can get you out of the hospital quicker. We can prevent organ damage from that cytokine storm or inflammation. Got it. So we need the therapeutics for sure, but ultimately the goal is the vaccine. And so you think we'll see a cocktail therapeutics, much like we have for HIV AIDS, right? Cocktail as opposed to one thing. And you'll see that coming out summer, fall, winter, yeah, I mean, the drugs are already being worked on. Some are, you know, some are already out there being studied. Some are being uh, in the process of being evaluated and created. But I do think the next couple months are going to be key. And I think by the fall, we'll probably have a better handle on what really works. All right. So I cut you off and I apologize for that. But we were talking a little bit about vaccines. So everyone is putting their hopes and dreams in a vaccine. But we don't always have vaccines for viruses, right? Look at HIV-AIDS, we don't have one. Epstein-Barr, we don't have one. The seasonal flu, we don't have one. But somehow we're all hoping and dreaming <laughs> that we're going to find one for this disease. Right. What do you think? I think we will. I do think we will. I think the investment is there um, from companies, uh, from the public, from the government. I think everybody recognizes the need for a vaccine. Um, and, and I think it's going to happen. I don't think that the virus is that difficult um, that it's not that it's the type where you couldn't create an effective vaccine because it hasn't mutated much yet. Exactly. And what have you. Exactly. Of course, a friend of mine who's a virologist says the reason it hasn't mutated is because we haven't attacked it with antivirals. Once <laughs> we start attacking it with antivirals on a big scale, it'll figure it out. That scared me. Well, one of the interesting things that we haven't talked a lot about, but um, is you know we interviewed a virologist who's been studying coronaviruses for forty years, and he said you know ideally. Viruses don't want to kill the host. They don't want to be lethal and deadly. Then they don't survive. So it is in the best interest of the virus over time to actually become weaker and almost more like a common cold where you get it, the virus can can survive and replicate, uh, but it doesn't kill the person or the host. I very much hope it gets that memo. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So timing, timing on the vaccine that we all dream about. 
There are projections that the end of 2020, we will be seeing a vaccine. Tara, I want to thank you for two things. A, I want to thank you for the role that you play in educating Americans and others on medical issues, and in particular, COVID-19 right now. And I want to thank you for being on the show. You were a fantastic guest, and I just really was thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime, on demand, with the SiriusXM app and wherever else you might find your podcasts.